welcome to the False Neutral Podcast, episode 89 for May of 2019. Take two, because I forgot <laughs> to click the record button. It sounds a little less enthusiastic. I was time. more enthusiastic <laughs> about 15 minutes ago. Yeah. Uh, at least we've rehearsed what we want to say to start. Uh, yeah. Eric and Garrett are with me as always, and uh, we were... Before we start talking about uh, what Garrett's been doing, we just want to thank <laughs> Jeff Glucker, the head of Hooniverse, because I had been pestering him to plug the False Neutral podcast in the main Hooniverse podcast that he does every week. And uh, at the end of the last episode, he very uh, just kind of offhand said, oh, and... RumbleStripRadio.net, there's your plug. Well, it's cause, and I was on the, I was on the live version of that, uh, when he was, when he was streaming on YouTube and they said something about, you know, shout engine, get your own damn podcast. So I just threw that in there and then he said, and that's what he said. And then I threw in the link for, uh, false neutral right after that. And yeah, he didn't get to it. Yeah. So anyways, <laughs> of course. So- so I guess that's my fault, really, because I put my podcast before our podcast. Because, you know, a 10-year-old podcast is, you know, the first thing that comes to mind, not the one I'm currently doing. So, mm-hmm. bad me. Yeah. Well, oh, well. anyways, so uh, we do normally have a nice little bump in our uh, listenership when we get a guest, uh, whether that's because the guests are more interesting than we are or because guests you know, link to it on their social media and other people that are friends of theirs. Listen, Rick Radcliffe, just our usual subscriber volume that we get every month. So uh, the magic didn't happen. (laughs) Oh, well, (laughs) Uh, but I did really enjoy last uh, episode, which brings us to what we were talking about before I realized we weren't recording. Uh, Garrett, last episode, we were in the middle of your second bring a trailer auction that was right. for the <clears throat> Titan because the, uh, the Vesco Yamaha had sold and we talked about that last time and it went to Tennessee. And then you, when we last left you, you were like a day away from having that close. Yeah. And the last time we talked, um, the, the auction was pretty, I remember it being pretty stale and was like moderately concerned that the bike was going to go for like really low money. Um, and I was, you know, kind of still in shock from the, the Vesco bike, not really going for anywhere near what I thought it would. Um, and, but, uh, a few people, uh, the, you know, kind of last minute bid on that. Uh, Suzuki Titan and it did pretty well. It sold for forty two hundred dollars and went to a gentleman in Hawaii. And which was exactly up, the same amount as yeah as yeah, which is wild. I couldn't believe that. Yeah. Um super coincidental that they would both sell for the exact same amount of money. Uh the Titan um got all crated up and uh, I had to build the crate for it. Uh, it, it, it. The person who ended up buying the motorcycle during the auction had asked me if I would help him, you know, with crating and like getting it to a place where it would get shipped. And um, on those auctions, you get a lot of questions like that. And it's, you know, mostly tire kickers who are just wondering, like, you know, if 
it so happens that I do win this auction is, you know, am I going to be able to get some help with transporting it? And so um, I said yes, and that was a genuine yes, but I also didn't really expect that this guy was going to win the auction because, like I said, you get a lot of questions like that. Um, well, he did win the auction, so I had to put my money where my mouth was, and actually um, I did him a solid because I was uh, happy about how much the Titan sold for. I built the crate um, for the the titan didn't charge him for that and then uh transported the titan from portland to seattle which is about 160 miles and uh, delivered it to the shipper that he had uh picked out i did not pay for the shipping but i did um transport it up to seattle for him and build the crate and like i was telling these guys on the podcast i was uh surprised that it only cost like 689 dollars to ship the Titan from Seattle to Hawaii and to ship the Vesco bike from Portland to, to Tennessee was like $900. So it actually costs less to ship a bike to Hawaii than it did mm-hmm. to go to Tennessee. Um, but I guess that's the which, way that which is probably reflective of the fact that one was crated and one wasn't. I yeah. would be interested to know what it would cost if you crated a bike and wanted it shipped whether that would yeah. be significantly cheaper. I'm guessing well, it would because, you know, when you when you have a bike shipper, they've got to have specialized equipment to tie it down and secure it. And, right. you know, there, there's more liability for them if it gets scratched or something. If you're boxing it up and they're like, it's a wooden box. I don't care if it's, you know, a lathe, a fire suppression equipment, a bike, whatever. It is. It's a big wooden box. I'm going to take a wooden box somewhere that's probably a lot cheaper. Yeah, and and that's a good point because on um when you're looking for a motorcycle shipper, you're looking for a shipper that like that's all they do is transport motorcycles and automotive things. But if it's crated, any freight company yeah would take it. And so then if you're looking at just freight transport, it's probably less than motorcycle specific shipping. The the last time I shipped a motorcycle was when I bought my RS125 from someone in Colorado. Now, this is 2000, 2000, 2001. Yeah, probably about 2000. Yeah, 2000, early 2001. Um, and it was done by Forward Air, which at the time was like the place to do all your motorcycle shipping with. But it was crated. Um, and again, this is 18 years ago or 17 years ago. And I think it was like only a couple hundred bucks. Or like it was under $300 to ship yeah. it, I think. So well, there's, there's a company, a dealership in, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, something like that, National Power Sports, they advertise pretty aggressively on Facebook with sponsored ads for bikes. And they advertise $299 shipping nationwide on any new bike you buy from them. And I'm like, wow, I don't know how you do that unless it's A, a loss leader, or B, they've got enough bikes going out that they simply have a truck. Yeah, that and they probably um, leave it in the factory crate and there's probably like you got to like kind of finish setting it up or like take it. Having worked at dealerships, I know that at least Yamaha and Honda had very strict dealership rules that you could not do that, that you had to take delivery. You had to fully assemble it, service it, test it so that it you, you were the final uh, kind of uh, quality control to make sure that everything was running before it went to a customer. You 
because we had some some people that would come to us and they would want to buy like especially snowmobiles end of the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't take it out of the crate. Just just sell me the crate and I'll service it and you know do the setup on it next fall. And we're like, sorry, we we can't yeah. do that. That's a violation well, of our franchise. And also, the, a lot of times those crates have to get sent back to the manufacturer too because they come in either um, like wooden crates that get destroyed or. Um, some of the other models come in like an actual reusable crate that gets sent back. So they, they sometimes come either way. Yeah, but. I was going to say they probably have enough extra ones sitting around that A, that whatever they do need to ship, they've got a crate there. And B, if they do enough volume through shipping, they've got to deal with some shipping company because of the volume they do for a better, yeah. for a better price. And then C, if motorcycles or power sports is anything like the car industry, if you ship enough vehicles, you get spiffs and kickbacks on the on the back end for doing x amount versus you know uh, that you just essentially pocket or can use as a discount so some somewhere between the three is probably how they get away with 300 bucks yeah well when i was uh creating up the titan i went to my local dealership motorcycle dealership and asked them if they had any crates I, i figured at least i could get a starting point and they told me that the the crates that you want we can't give out because they have to go back to the manufacturer um there are those the ones that are sort of metal framed inside um well some of them yes but also they're doing like a plastic type like Ah. like i don't know modular system too um there were some wooden ones but they're like you know those are basically destroyed by the time we get the bike out of them and like you know it's pretty much firewood but if you want to take something you can yeah um, uh, years this is this is going back this is late 80s uh, the dealership i worked in in st louis had uh also sold john deere and white lawn tractors not even like industrial or agriculture like garden tractor crates yeah, yeah. Were these welded angle iron, just these monstrosities that were just hell for strong. Yeah. <laughs> and I had two, two of them that I just took home and the top of them, they had a lip so that they could stack them, get a half inch piece of plywood, drop it in there. And you had a really nice, like three foot by four foot shop table that yeah. easily. And they were yeah. like, oh, well, we get a little bit from the scrapper for getting rid of those. But if you want them, you can take them home. Take as many as you want because we <laughs> just want to get them out of here. And, you know, the guy only comes once a month to get our scrap metal. And so it, they were incredible how much raw steel was in these crates. And they didn't do anything with them. I'm sure now yeah. with recycling, there's a whole lot more intelligent use of them. So, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the Titan is gone, which, as Pete pointed out in our first round of this, um, was the last uh, thing that I had going on for for other people. So now I have just my own projects that I can focus on, which is probably why I've been especially productive in the last uh, week and a half, two weeks um, with my own projects. Um, It does feel very good to be done with those motorcycles because now I can really just take a breath and work on my own stuff. So, uh, yeah. So, and I had also mentioned that, um, the Kenny Roberts RZ 350, the family gave to me, uh, after the work that I had put in selling the Vesco RD and the Suzuki Titan, um, I was going to buy the, uh, the Kenny Roberts RZ 
but they uh, offered to give it to me and I was very appreciative because I felt that that was a very generous offer of them. So pretty excited about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's awesome. And you've been okay. from, from the stuff you posted on, on Facebook, you've <clears> been <throat> very, very busy getting that put together. Yeah. So the engine's just about done. Uh, I, so it's actually funny. I finished, and I think I talked about this on the last episode. I finished my powder coating oven. So now I can powder coat stuff, which was not having it done was holding me back from finishing some projects. So I powder coated the cylinders for the RZ350. Um, now my goal for it is that it look like close to stock. I guess it's not going to have the original carburetors on it. And I'm still on the fence about whether or not I'm going to use the original air box, but I did at least want the cylinders to be black. Like the original ones were. So I powder coated them and then finished the cylinder bores, fit the pistons. Um, so essentially the engine's done the head, um, in my lathe, it would contact the, the rails where the, the bed is. So I ended up just having a friend of mine who's a machinist uh, finish cutting the O-ring grooves on it. I was able to deck the head in my mill, and I had him just adjust the squish band a little bit and then cut O-ring grooves in it. He's done, so I'll be able to put the head back on the engine, and the engine will be done. The frame had the kickstand relocated on it because with expansion chambers, oftentimes the factory placement of the kickstand interferes with the expansion chamber. So people usually cut them off and weld them on in a little bit different place. And whoever did that to this one shouldn't have been welding. <laughs> uh, they must've just been practicing <laughs> because I mean, it is just horrendous. Um, I- I'm pretty sure anybody in this world could have done a better job uh, than they did on this one. So I, and it was unfortunately too far gone to really fix. So I ended up just having to cut a section of the frame out and, uh, fit a new tube in its place. And I'm going to laser cut a new foot peg mount and, uh, that looks a lot nicer. Um, yeah. And, and you, fix the frame. So you have to, you have to, understand i i saw your pictures of yeah i'm just gonna cut this out and well and i'm like me replacing a a, a section of frame takes me two years <laughs> <laughs> and you're like yeah i just cut it out. i'm gonna do it and it'll be next week and i was like, I was like yeah uh. um you know i i've done that i mean not specifically the kickstand uh issue but i guess maybe that too but um, I've had to repair many motorcycle frames in my time. And uh, so this is just, you know, kind of doing what I've done a zillion times before. So so I guess the the critical thinking part of it, I don't really have to do anymore because I've done it so many times. So it's easy for me to just, you know, cut this out, cut a new piece of tube. Um, our Yamahas and, and a lot of motorcycles have sometimes obscure frame sizes like uh, oftentimes you'll find a seven eighths diameter tube on an RZ or, or uh, other motorcycles, which doesn't sound that obscure, but in the motorcycle world, it kind of is. And if you go to a metal shop, oftentimes they only have three quarter or one inch. It's actually kind of hard to find seven eighths tubing, but at any rate, all of the different tubing sizes you would need for a motorcycle frame, I just have stockpiles of, so I can just, 
you know, cut little pieces off and uh, fix things here and there. So um, that makes it more convenient. But uh, yeah, so I, I fit the, the new tube in the frame. Um, in fact, just before we got on this podcast, I was getting my welder all set up because I'm going to go and weld it all today. Um, once it's done uh, welding that new piece in, then I'll uh, start making the new kickstand uh, gusset that goes on the frame itself. So. Now, do you do you use any kind of like internal slug or anything when you weld that up, or do you just position it, get it get it close, and and it depends on where where on the frame. Um, this part of the frame doesn't really have a lot of forces on it, at least because it's there's a lot of other um, bracing around it. Uh, so just in this section, um, it's just going to be butt welded in, um, but it will be the, the butt ends will be bridged by the new kickstand. Oh, when you, when you get that on. Yeah. That, yeah. That'd... It'll be reinforced. Uh, if that kickstand bracket wasn't going to be there, then I would probably fit tubing that goes inside the frame and then plug weld it. It's hard to describe over a podcast, but yeah, I would reinforce it internally if, the new kickstand bracket wasn't going to brace it from the outside. So yeah. And it also kind of depends on the frame too. Mm -hmm. If it's somewhere near a suspension component, then I would uh, definitely reinforce it more heavily. But where this this is, is this is on the bottom of the cradle, right? It's, it's, it's it's just connecting two different mounting points for the engine. So yeah. 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 I I pulled up the, uh, the photos here and yeah, that kickstand is really boogered up. Yeah, (laughs) it, it is. (laughs) and you know it i thought about um i thought about whether or not i could live with myself if i left it there (laughs) and you know i I had gone back and forth on it and and i spent a lot of time over the last few days detailing that motorcycle because you know old two strokes you have an exhaust leak with some oil coming out of it next thing you know the entire motorcycle is caked in oil and dirt and and so I I literally with a toothbrush scrubbed every square inch of this motorcycle so that it looked as clean as could possibly be. And after doing all of that, I just wasn't willing to leave that nasty kickstand on it. Having gone through all of that work to do everything else and then look at that ugly kickstand, so um, I, I felt like I had I to. I get that. It. Yeah, I get that. So plus. You know, people usually what they do is they weld those kickstand mounts on a little bit higher up and a little bit more angled outward. So then your motorcycle, when you put your kickstand down, leans over way too far. And I don't want it to lean over too far. I want it to lean just how it did uh, from the factory. And so I'll build the new kickstand mount so that, you know, everything is just right where it needs to be. So it doesn't look weird or stupid or lean over too far. Um, The... Rear suspension, I wanted to ensure it worked just like it was supposed to. So I took all of the linkage apart, cleaned everything. And so I'll re-lube it all when I put it back together. Um, wanted to make sure nothing was bound up. Um, none of the pivots were poorly lubricated from not having been serviced in 30 years. So um, took all that apart. Uh, gosh, what else have I done to that bike? Uh, that's probably about it right now. But um, so, yeah, I'm going to do a fork oil change on it, bleed all the brakes, replace the brake lines, um, get that engine stuff back in it. And probably in two or three weeks, it'll be 
on the road and ready to go. So hopefully next episode you can give us a ride report. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I'm working hard on it. I'll have to include a picture in the article when this comes out because I want to show you guys a uh, picture of a custom-framed RD. Actually, it's a Banshee motor. A guy in England, they never got the 350 Banshees over there, so they don't have a big culture of those, you know, giant... It's a what, cheetah cylinder. The stroker and the big overbores are not like a big thing over there. Mm-hmm. And so this guy got a Banshee motor with a big bore kit, 420-something. 421 and, usually, I think. 421? Okay. Yeah, if it's a 421, then it's probably a 4 mil stroke. That uh, That's the standard configuration for a 4 mil. What is it? A four mil stroke with a 68 millimeter bore. Yeah. That sounds right. Yeah. yeah. So anyways, uh, he got the motor. He had a flat track style custom frame made for it. He was inspired by Kenny Roberts, uh, TZ 750 flat track, mm-hmm. but he thought, well, I can't do a four cylinder. So I'll just build the biggest two cylinder street tracker replica that I can. And yeah. if you go out to advrider.com, he's got a build thread on the whole thing. But uh, very cool-looking bike. And it kind of reminded me of what you want to do with your air-cooled RD350. Yeah. Makes me eager to see what you do with that one. So Yeah, well, on that one, I'm really going to flex my muscle and build uh, a really cool engine. And also, I didn't build the chassis on that one, but... When I get to it and when I take some more detailed pictures, it is really a work of art. And I, I would love to find out who built the chassis because they just did such a phenomenal job on it. But yeah, this one that we're looking at now, that's a pretty cool setup and it'll run really good. I mean, Banshee engines and RZ engines, they just respond so well to tuning, especially with stroker crankshafts and um, some of these aftermarket cylinders that you can get nowadays. They you know, make a lot of power and it doesn't really cost that much money relatively uh, to get a lot of power out of them. So that's pretty cool. Uh, anything else going on or should we move on to Eric and his workshop? Uh, let's see. I think that's it for me for now. Slack. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Such a loser. <laughs> uh, have you been out riding your XS 400 at all? I have not. Have That's you... because Seattle Seattle called and says, God, bleep, it's cold and rainy in Detroit. Is it ever going to stop? <laughs> so we're recording this on the 7th of May. Um, I think there were four days in April it did not rain. Uh, the average temperature was like 8 to 10 degrees below normal. So I think we had like three or four really decent days in April. And then like this past weekend, we had two decent days. One nice day and one decent day. So, yeah, no. <laughs> On top of that, I've had a few expenses pop up to keep me from progressing. So, Which is why um, you don't have a new Tuano? Among other reasons. <laughs> well, that and a bunch of other debt that I need to, I'm need. i working on getting rid of. I don't need any the, more debt. For listeners, the Tuano that's local to me that Eric was watching came down in price, what, Seven hundred dollars and uh, yes, what thirty nine hundred bucks? Thirty nine hundred dollars, yeah. For yeah, it's one of the nine ninety eight V twins that we had talked about, I think, last episode. So yeah, two thousand three was sixteen thousand miles and the uh, factory race exhaust on it. Yeah, no, it's it's fine. It'd be perfect. But um, so 
<laughs> on one of the nice days we did have, or decent days, I did roll it out. I did thoroughly wash it to get the three inches of dust off of it. I did not get the all the chrome polished and stuff, but it looks a thousand times better than what it did. Because I actually used like, I actually got the soap that I use for washing my cars and stuff like that, and foamed it up real nice and hosed it off and scrubbed it a little bit. So it looks way better. Um, I do need to adjust the carbs though because I think I need to adjust the the needles in it because. Even when it's warmed up, the throttle's real, real funky coming off the um, the idle circuit. So, I mean, once you get it up, it's it seems to run okay. But it's just that that transition from idle to about two to three thousand RPM. It's little something. So I got to play with the play with the carbs a little bit. Um, the last thing I need to do is get tires on it, which I think I talked about last time. And I did at least do some window shopping on tires and looked at four different ones, which were the Michelin Pilot Actives, the Bridgestone BT-45s, the Avon Roadrider AM26s, and Continental Contigos, and looked at all that. And apparently, although it, the Michelins may be radials, but it certainly didn't look like it, but then it looked like the Bridgestones were going to be the best deal because I found them for like 100 bucks for the front and 98 bucks for the rear. And trying to convert, for the lack of a better term, standard measurements into metric measurements for tires because they're like a 318 and a 32518 or something like that. Um, so finding the right size tires was – so it's like a 90-90-18 and a 120-90-18 that I need to get. So mm-hmm. um, And then trying to find a place if I can – find some place around here that'll mount and balance them without costing as much as the tires themselves will be it'll be nice i mean can i do it myself sure but it's always nicer when someone else can do it for you for a reasonable amount of money versus messing with tire irons and static balancing and things like that so that's kind of where that stands the the reason why it hasn't advanced is um we had our main sewer line back up in the house um not the first time it's happened and last time we did we had the rotor people come out and they did it and i think that was two years ago what I found out is most rotor we have like a five or six inch main line going out to the um, to the main sewer line, and rotor rooter people only use typically like a three inch kind of um, yeah drill well whatever auger whatever you want right, to call that right. There's enough dirt sediment and tree roots in my area that it just got clogged up again. So uh, called these other people and they basically use like a water jet cutter <laughs> and they cut like the whole six inch line out. And when they showed me the camera for going in, you know, going in and out, it looks like brand new pipe in there. Wow. <laughs> so thankfully you don't have to worry about that, but it was also $2,000 to have that done. Wow. Holy smokes. Yeah. But as he said, if we would have just done the regular rotor routing for you in about two or three years, we would have been back and you would have had the same issues. So right. what's, what's more expensive in the end. And then the other end is that I ended up needing a new set of glasses. I've needed progresses for a little bit. It was getting to the point where I was having a hard time working and getting headaches and stuff like that and having to take my glasses off and off. So I got a new pair of glasses. Yeah, that was $750. (laughs) Yeah, same. I'm like, damn. So, yeah, it's been an expensive month, which is why the bike has not uh, not progressed. It's also why I don't have a new lawnmower and a new uh, pellet grill on my deck either. So, yeah. um. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Before we move on, I do want to say, though, because you were talking about TZs. Uh, Melissa Paris, who is the wife of Josh Hayes, multi-time AMA Superbike champion, and Melissa's been a racer for like her entire life. I remember her racing 125s as like a 13-year-old, 14-year-old out at Will Springs. Um, she has her own team running in 
Moto America, which actually Josh has come out of retirement to race in. Um, she just raced in the 24 hour Le Mans bike, uh, motorcycle race. And then what was really cool is she was teasing this all week, or this was a week or two ago, but she was teasing it for a few days. She went out to Willow Springs for one of the vintage races at Willow Springs and rode a TZ uh, 750. Oh, wow. Right. I'm just like, oh, oh, <laughs> I yeah. saw she showed the pictures and she did uh, on Instagram her Instagram story. Uh, they showed it starting up. And I'm just like, excuse me, I, I, I will be back in a moment. <laughs> <laughs> As the British say, I had a bit of a crisis. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so that was I just wanted to give anytime any says TZ750. I'm like, OK, yeah. Remember when you said if you win the lottery, the things you're going to buy? Yeah, that would be top 20. <laughs> mm-hmm. So anyway, so. Um, trying to think other than that, I did get a chance to try out that Arai helmet a little more and like the initial fit of it was like super tight to the point of like, I wasn't sure how I was getting it off my head, but now that I've taken it off three or four times, it's, it's actually really, really comfortable. So, um, it's still an expensive helmet, but it's an Arai helmet and you know, you get what you pay for and how much your head worth kind of kind of argument on that but it's i'm looking forward to being able to ride with it oh sorry this was the other thing about cold and rainy the local ducati store was doing their demo days ride and of course it was it was 40 degrees and raining so it it got rained out yeah yeah yeah, no i know so because that was going to be one of the things i was going to do for for this you know this was going to film some videos and um talk about it just as a like quick ride reviews but yeah nope that didn't happen either so like i said april's been uh, a crap show here in detroit as far as the weather for doing anything interesting i was gonna say with awry helmets and most of the high-end helmets i think they have different increment sizes of pads so mm-hmm. you can you know if you're che- if you have big cheeks for instance you can you know have like extra large size pads but then you know, get five millimeter narrower cheek pads and stuff like that. So you can kind of tune the helmet padding to fit your head too. Yeah. Um, but um, before we move on from talking uh, about your stuff, Eric, I want to get your thoughts and this is sorry, changing the subject. Yeah. I wanted to hear your thoughts on it compared to the Panigale V4 um, and just Aprilia in general and the 1100. <sighs> Yeah. Mm. <laughs> well, the fact that they that they they did the debut at Mugello and everyone mm. who shot video there had reasonable audio. So you hear it going down the front straight at Mugello and then yeah. breaking for turn one. It's like, oh, yeah. Um, so here's the thing. that and it's funny because I think I made this point in a comment on one of the, somebody's video on it on YouTube. I think we're seeing we're we're. Where 20 years ago, we had the 1100s, like the GSX-R 1100, and Yamaha had theirs, and Kawasaki, and all that. We might be seeing that to the point of, like, they'll be the thousands, but those will be the specialty bikes again for, for superbike racing. But what's what else is holding you back from doing bigger displacement? And I think that's what yeah. we're seeing. That's what Ducati did. Right. And they sold, and everyone else, you know, and, and Aprilia went, well, we can do that. And I think very soon you'll see... Kawasaki and probably Suzuki um, do that do that same thing here real quick. Honda probably not. Um, Yamaha yeah. hard to say, but yeah, well, I think we're gonna start seeing a couple of the Japanese bikes. So yeah, yeah. the the craziest thing though is that basic chassis is over a decade old now, and right. it's still as good or better than anything else on a production motorcycle, which is just extraordinary. Yeah. One of the other podcasts I listened to, uh, 
one of the testers ha- was there at Magello and tested. The other host said, if it was your money for a track machine, which one would you spend your money on? The, the V4 Panigale or this? And he was like, yeah, I'd do the RSV. Yeah, I mean, that that is amazing to me. Well, and also, I think I don't remember which review I was watching, but the lap times were faster on the RSV, yeah, than they were on the Ducati, which yeah, for I a ten-year-old chassis, is that, I think that was the forty-fourteenth one, right? Because he it said it was like the 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 Ducati felt a lot faster, but the Aprilia actually was faster. Yeah, yeah. So I've heard several people so, say the Aprilia is a lot more work to get to go fast because it's so much harder edged. Yeah. Um, I will say though, that I think most of the reviews that I have uh, read or listened to um, have given kind of a slight edge uh, to the RSV in terms of what the uh, tester would prefer Mm -hmm. uh, compared to the Panigale, which I, I like the V4 Ducati just because it's, you know, it's just, it's a Ducati. The the RSV is a little bit stale, you know, mm-hmm. the, the look of it and the, and the chassis yep. is old, but it still performs so well. I mean, if I were to go buy a motorcycle right now, I'd have a tough, either one of those, I'd have a tough time choosing. But I just am super impressed by Aprilia. The, the thing that I come against, though, is that I, well, especially turning 50 this year, and I know my skill levels, either of those bikes is wasted on me. Yeah, well, it's they're wasted on like the 90, 95% of the people, right? Yeah, yeah. but even, even on a track with... Of the little skill that I have, it's still waste. It it still would be like, ugh. Um, yeah. I'm actually in some as, as cool as it is, and yes, it'd be awesome. I'd love to have it. Um, I'm actually more interested in the RS660 they're teasing, mm-hmm. which is yeah. a you know basically half that a parallel twin version of of that engine, and um, they're already talking about in like a, a, a nice chassis, both for yeah. uh, you know for for the. Uh, sport bike and then for a two, you know, two mini Tuano. And then I think they're even talking in an ADV version too. So that would be yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, and the track capabilities of those motorcycles, I really couldn't care less about, which is why I'm excited that they're putting the 1100 motors in those is because that additional horsepower and torque, it's, you know, fun on the street. And yep. why limit yourself to a thousand CCs when yep. people like me, are rarely going to go to the track. And when they do, it's a club day and who cares what your displacement is. So, but yeah, on the, on the back roads, that extra torque can make a, just that little bit of torque makes a big difference. Yeah. One last one that came up is the reviews of the Indian FTR 1200 are coming out now. Have you mm-hmm. seen any of those? I have not. I know motorcyclist has theirs written. Um, a couple other people tease some videos and, they did it in Baja, of all the places, mm. and they actually had to ride it on like some crappy. When I think flat tracking, I think Baja. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Scrambler, sure. Flat tracker, no. Uh, okay. It's interesting though, but like Cycle World showed the video of the Dino, and it was like one sixteen horsepower, eighty nine torque to the wheel. What? Yeah. That's, that's like unbelievable. That's amazing. Yeah, it was it was pretty amazing. So yeah. and and the red line's at nine grand, so it's not like you're cranking it super high. I mean, that's still pretty high for a big V twin, but 
Um, yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. Yeah, expensive um, but interesting. Yeah, and the latest, uh, I think it's Motorcyclist magazine, and they do this every month or every quarter, however often that magazine comes out. Um, they like showcase three older bikes and, and kind of compare them, and they showed the Triumph Rocket Three. Mm-hmm. Um, I had no idea how much torque those make, and I yes. guess I should have with, you know, 2,300 cc's. Those are 163 foot-pounds of torque. Yep. That have is you, wild. Have you ever ridden one of those? No, but I oh, want to about, now. They're about five feet wide. Um, yeah. And it had yeah. – it wasn't quite cruiserish, but it wasn't standard. It was sort of – a, it, it was it was standard, but a little cruiserish, and as wide as it was, it was a little little odd to ride. But yeah. yeah, it was. I rode it for like three or four hours, and it was cool. Yeah, um, that's a lot that, of torque. Uh, yeah, it was just. It I was haven't heavy heard. though. That was it. Just yeah. heavy. That was that was the thing you noticed though. It did not it's hide a its weight. Engine. I mean, twenty three hundred cc's. That is and. and and now they're doing a special edition of a new version, which is like a 2,500 cc, which is even more that's power wild. and more torque. Oh, it's, yeah, that's it's wild. Insane. Yeah. I, I, have, I haven't ridden one, but I have, was talking to a guy who had one that I just met on, and he's like, the, the transmission's pretty much superfluous. You can mm-hmm. pretty much whack it open in any gear, and if you're mm-hmm. not at redline, which you never are, you just go. Whether it's first gear, third gear, it doesn't really care. Yeah. Yeah, you get cool. up into like fourth fifth gear whatever and just just ride the torque ha, of it it's, have you guys amazing. ever seen the torque curve of the new uh the 2018 2019 goldwing no it, it is bizarre that it like between zero and a thousand it goes up to i, I don't know what 100 foot pounds whatever the the max is and it is table flat from a thousand rpm to redline that's wild. It is. It's it's like that's that's almost unbelievable. Yeah. Without, There's gonna be a lot of computer a, magic. Yeah, to say without it being a with if it was a turbo, that's easy to do. For a naturally aspirated, that that takes some tuning. Yeah, yeah. 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 But again, that's an eight hundred pound bike, so mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but that makes sense. Yeah. It makes yeah, it makes all the sense in the world. All right, Pete. <laughs> your turn. Okay. Well, well fabrication uh, time. Fabrication it, in Pete's in Pete's in Pete's basement. Well, there is none because <laughs> the weekend after our last episode got recorded, uh, my wife and I went out to visit my niece in Central Kansas, and uh, on the way home, she was just really complaining, and she had had oh, some, yeah. some really uncomfortable abdominal pains for. I don't know, two or three weeks, and she kept running a low-grade fever. Then it would come back, and then it would go away, and then it would come back. She had had a perforated appendix for three weeks because she had she had, had one bout of really bad uh, nausea and vomiting. Yeah. And, we, and it was like, oh, you got a stomach bug. She got over it, but she didn't really get over it. Well, when we finally took her into the emergency room that next Monday morning, they did a CAT scan and they're like, "Oh yeah, you've got an abscessed uh, uh, abdomen. You, you're you're full of infection, and there's not. Yeah. Even, it's not even like we can go in and operate at this point because we'd be taking out, you know, a thirty year colon. So, Oof. That's so super dangerous. anyways, so she spent a week in the hospital on antibiotics and she's still recovering and um, she's home now. But 
in that situation, working on motorcycles in the garage was the least important thing you could have asked me about. Oh, yeah. Uh, I agree. It hasn't even been on my radar. I did go down one time because I had gotten a cheap little, like, triple racing stripe that was like an inch and a half wide to go down the tank because I had this plain white fuel tank that didn't match anything on my little 125 refrigerator white. I thought I got to do something. So I bought some nice little uh, raised Honda wing emblems to go on the side. And I put this little tape stripe down there. And normally, you know, they're vinyl and you can kind of heat them up with a heat gun and kind of stretch them over the curves. Well, I tried to do that, but the backing on this was like a metallic foil that didn't mm-hmm. stretch. So I tried to get it down and it looked okay. And I went back and looked at it a couple of days later and on the curves, any place that had a, a, a pretty severe compound curve on it, they had just lifted up. So I was like, oh. mm. so I had to kind of trim it short so it doesn't go all the way from the very front of the tank to the seat because it had real tight radius curves on the front and back of the tank. So I had to kind of trim that down. It doesn't look quite as nice as it did, but it also doesn't look like it's peeling up crappy eBay tape stripe, which is what it is. So mm-hmm. uh, that's about the only thing I did. Um, and you're Eric talking about money. Uh, oh yeah. And I forgot Well, I have one other expense, but t- talk about yours. Then I had another big expense. Um, I forgot about too. on this trip out to central Kansas and back, we got about 45 miles outside of town and the truck, our 2002 Ford F-150 developed a really bad hesitation and it just got worse through the whole trip. And it turned out that, you know, it's got the coil on plug and one of the coils was bad because I, I used the code scanner and got the scan and looked it up online. And they're like, yeah, that could be a coil. It could also be indicative of a clogged catalytic converter. Mm. And I was like, oh, I hope not. I just got a call from the mechanic today that it wasn't that much money. And it's a couple hundred bucks. We'll get it fixed. No problem. But we have been nickel and dimed on this truck enough and we're losing its confidence to take it cross country because it's a, you know, it's a 2002. So 17 years old. And just in the past six or eight months, it's been back to the mechanic for a lot of unrelated stuff that all seems to be going bad about the same time. So we're talking about maybe buying a couple year old F-150, which Ain't cheap. So yeah. any extra money that I might have to play with bikes is now going to buy a really nice F-150 Super Crew Lariat. Yeah, well, that's not so bad. <laughs> yeah, well. Which, which, if you saw my posts or my uh, things on uh, uh, Slack earlier today, it's like, for what you're going to pay for used, you could almost buy new. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, um, no, sorry. The other thing I had is an expense, too. And I don't know how I didn't forget this because it was just just in the last week. Um, I've had press cars for most of the last two months. So I haven't driven my element that much, except for about three weeks ago. I think I had a Veloster and the dog did not fit in the Veloster. So I had to drive my element. And I noticed that it was driving a little odd and the suspension seemed a little more off than I was thinking of. And I had, I needed to put brakes on the front anyway, so I'd done the rears last year. So I've been driving in the last few days, and I'm like, yeah, this is not right. So before I go to Canada on the, uh, what am I leaving, the 17th or something, to go announce for the first round of the Superbike Series, uh, 16th, because that's 
17th through the 19th up there. Um, let me go get this checked out real quick. So I go there. Yeah, your, your ball joint on your right side is, is pretty much destroyed. And your caliper is locked up, which, and you have almost no pad on the right side. So you need new calipers. <laughs> well, I had the, pa- I had the, uh, rotors and the pads. So I needed a ball joint and two new calipers. And, um, so by the time that was all done, that was like 750 bucks too. So yeah, that's <laughs> like yeah. one yeah. thing after the other. But, you well, know. the, the outcome of all of this is being adults sucks. That's yeah, the outcome. Yeah. Of all this being well, sucks. <laughs> my wife was not really thrilled about the idea of finding herself in the middle of North Dakota or Nebraska and suddenly having severe abdominal pain or yeah, no. something like that. So we are not going to do smack dab this year. That four day trip is now going to be one day out, see everybody off and come back that morning. So. So with her situation, once this is all cleared up, do they operate after that? Once everything's all cleared up? We don't know at this point. They're going to one night sitting in the hospital, just spent my time reading every medical journal article on appendiceal abscesses and how they're treated. And over the last 15 or 20 years, they've really determined that if you just don't mess with it and let it turn into scar tissue, you're usually better off than trying to go in. Mm. If you've already got the infection under control, which you have to do before you can do anything that you Mm. can just let it go and it'll eventually scar over and you're good. So we don't know Mm. at this point she's doing better. She's, you know, most uh, important thing and not in severe abdominal pain. And she can eat full meals. So this is all good stuff. And and she did feel good enough to go see Endgame in the theater twice so far. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, it, it really puts a lot of stuff in life in perspective when something like that happens. So all it's right. like, okay, mm-hmm. I don't care about a bunch of stuff. Uh, so that, yeah, we, that said, Garrett, if you're free on Friday. <laughs> yeah. No, I want Garrett to go down to the local Goozy dealer and well, that's what I say, isn't that Friday of the Yeah, time Friday of this week. Uh you need I, I need to live vicariously through you and have you go ride the the V eighty five TT for me and tell me what you think of it. Yeah. I might try to make it down there. Because I wouldn't mind riding it myself. Yeah. So, so. Well, anything any, any other news um, going on? There's uh, my friend is an auctioneer and uh, that sounds like a country does, song. Yeah, he every week he does an auction at this um, local place in Portland. And he told me that this next Tuesday they have a 1944 Indian that was sitting in a barn for the last 45 years. Um, and it's going up for auction, uh, just as it was found. Um, so I'm going to, it, at the very least, I'll, I'll get details from him and kind of find out maybe some pictures and, and what it goes for, but I might go watch the auction too. So. It's probably going to be some really stupid number, like 65,000 or something like that. Cause it's yeah. a barn find, right? Right. Yeah. And, a, a you know, a 44. So like a wartime. That's wartime. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So there's probably not that many of those around. Uh, so yeah, there's that. Mm, I think that's the only other thing that I had going on. So go see what that sells for. Yeah, I think by the time we uh, 
we do our next show, I'll have announced two rounds of the Canadian Superbike Championship. So I have that to talk about next time. Yeah, very good. And uh, let's see, that would still be before Smack Dab. So uh, I don't know anything. Oh, uh, the 18th, which is a week from Saturday, there is a local, uh, the spring show for the Kansas City chapter of the Vintage Japanese Motorcycle Club is going to be about, I think it's a eight, nine miles from my house. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go check it out. And if possible, if I have an opportunity to get the 125 running before then, I'm going to try and give, make that its maiden yeah. shakedown cruise. So there you go. If it doesn't happen, doesn't happen. But that's, that's something to aspire to. They have another one in July, which might be. <laughs> more possible so okay well we're just yeah, under close to an hour yeah, yeah. F- 54 minutes so now see there you can now see how much of this i end up editing out by seeing what the final product is you can figure <laughs> out how much of this i cut out when i edit <laughs> that'll do it for this week or this month rather we will see you all next time until then uh we're always posting stuff on facebook and the Tuesday closest to the 15th on Two Wheel Tuesday, same day this go live, you can go to Hooniverse, look at pictures of all the stuff that we talk about. We try to include pictures of the bikes or individual pictures that we talk about. We put out in a Hooniverse article or blog post that day. As always, thank you guys for taking the time to talk and I'll see you all next month and probably text and talk to you in the meantime. <laughs>